0: All right, good morning, everyone. So great to uh, have you with us this morning. So, when you came in, you received a half sheet of paper that has a lot of the events that are forthcoming. Um, So, I'm not going to read through them all, but I just want to highlight that there is a preschool story time that's going to be starting. Katie will be by the sign up sheets. You can talk to her after the service about that. Um, And then we have two choirs that we're beginning preparation for in the month of November. One is a children's choir, one is an adult choir, and no, you can't choose which one you want to be in, okay? If you're an adult, you've got to be in the adult choir, okay? (laughs) So that's clear, all right? And then there is a... uh, desire for baptism on the part of a few people, so if you have trusted Christ and have not made that profession in the waters of baptism, we would love to have you participate in one of our baptism services, so there's also a sign-up sheet for that out in the foyer. Okay? I want to ask you to stand with me, if you would. I'm going to read a psalm that is very uh, integral to the uh, topic of our sermon today and the songs that we're going to sing today, and it's from Psalm 8 i want you to listen to this and uh join in the celebration that this text is it says lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth you have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger when i consider your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place what is man that you were mindful of him, human beings that you would care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. And then the psalmist ends by saying this, Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I've been spending a lot of time this week focused on that topic of creation and glory and that God has made us co-regents over the world under him and all of the massive implications of that. When David stops thinking about that and just pauses, he, he looks up to God and he says, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, as we join together this morning to glorify and exalt and praise you, I pray that you will open our hearts to hear from you. Holy Spirit, that we would listen to you as you speak to us through your word this morning, that we would be receptive and open to the things that you have to say to us and for us today. Glorify yourself, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here who does not yet know the fullness of the rest that is promised in Christ, I pray that today might be the day when they come to know him whom to know is life eternal. Lord, this could be a a permanently life-changing day for someone or for a few people today. And so God, we pray that blessing over this crowd of people that have gathered together. Help us as we sing that we would sing to one another, glorifying your name. We pray this blessing in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's worship him together. (laughs)
1: I was buried beneath my shame Who could carry that kind of weight It was my dream Till I met you I was breathing but not A line All my failures I tried To hide It was my turn Till I made you. You called my name has saved my soul, now your freedom is all that I know. day. rescue. My sin was heavy. The chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter. I was a Now you call me a citizen of heaven. When I was broke, For the throne before the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me my name is Raven on his hands my name is Raven on his heart I know that a while in heaven he stands no tongue can bid me hence heart. no tongue can bid me hence depart well, Satan tempts but Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see Him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him. and tempts me to despair and tells me With Christ on high With Christ my Savior and my God With Christ my Savior and my God With Christ my Savior and my God God. Run to the Father, fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I run to the Father again and again and again. For redemption The price for my heart I don't have a context For that kind of love I don't understand I can't comprehend All I know is I need you I run to the Father grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. So I run to the Father again and again and again and again. Whoa! Feel this rush Deep in my chest Your mercy is full
2: Father, we thank you so much for your presence in our midst and the presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the beauty of your holiness, the beauty of your mercy and your love for us. And Lord, think about the words of this song of us running to you, but Lord, you you run to us just with the prodigal son and... and uh, is the magnitude of that lord god is is beyond our comprehension you love us so much to even give up your son for us lord lord i pray you uh this blessed time we spend together this morning as tim brings your word to us lord god and lord i pray that as as the words leave his mouth as Sound waves that they don't just are not just vibrations in our ears, Lord God, that turns to words in our head, but vibrations in our heart and vibrations in our mind, Lord God, will have a changing effect on us, Lord God. We pray that the unction of the Holy Spirit will be upon him this morning and that he, uh, he will bring the words just as you speak them to him, Lord God. Uh, that it might be a blessing to those here that will address our, our needs. And help us to grow in you, Lord God, and to become the servants that you uh, would desire us to be, Lord God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. And you can turn uh, to Genesis 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. and The man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil."
0: All right, thank you, Tim. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Genesis 2, hopefully you're already there. We're going to let the children be dismissed for junior church. and. Uh, let's jump into god's word this morning is lauren here this morning erica your friend lauren i don't think so okay all right we'll deal with that announcement another time um okay so genesis 2 title of my sermon this morning is the rhythm of work rest and worship i think i only had two of them on there, but when I got to the end of my sermon prep, I realized I needed to add the word worship to the end of that. So all of our lives are lived in a rhythm, okay? There's a flow to how our days go. There's a, there's a, there's a purpose for which God created us that is manifested in that ebb and flow of our daily life. <clears throat> so as I set up the context for what I'm gonna talk about this morning, the first thing I wanna talk about is how chapters one and two of Genesis relate to each other because it's obvious as you read that that one seems to be a recapitulation of the first one. Okay, so chapter one talks about creation uh, in, 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 in this kind of vast array, the broader picture, so that chapter two verse one says, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So that's talking about what Doug spoke about the last two weeks, the kind of the fullness of the created realm. All right, chapter two is more of a detailed focus. So you go from kind of the wide lens to a narrow focus, and that is on the pinnacle of creation, the high point of creation, which is the creation of humanity. Okay, so as you read through these chapters, if you're trying to understand why chapter two seems to be talking about some of the things that were talked about in chapter one. The reason is that chapter two is a focus on humanity, which gives us insight and understanding into this rhythm that is to characterize the lives that we live. The other thing you'll notice is in chapter two, kind of moving forward from there, you're gonna notice that God is no longer called God. He is called Lord. God okay if you read through chapter one in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth when you get into chapter two and you read uh in verse four this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the heaven and earth so there is a distinct change in the nomenclature that is used to address God in these texts okay so the word God is the word Elohim it's the one that has that plural, majestic, royal character to it. Talks about the one who is infinitely powerful and the creator of the world based on Genesis one. When you get to chapter two, you find that God is referred to by the name that he reveals himself to Moses to in the book of Exodus. Did did that make sense what I just said? Okay, so the word Lord, I am the eternally existing God who in Genesis 1 created the world and is the covenant-keeping God. That's the idea of Yahweh or Lord. He is the one who makes promises. In the book of Exodus, he has made massive promises to the nation of Israel, and he wants them to know as they read the creation account that the one who is committed to them is the one who understands how they were made because he made them. Okay, so at He's called Lord God here, I think, 20 times. Moses writes five books in the Old Testament. We call that the Pentateuch, pen five and the Tuch, the scrolls. Moses writes five books. In the rest of the books, I believe he refers to God as Lord God only four times in the next five books. Here he refers to him in that fashion 20 times. Okay, so you get this emphasis that as he focuses in on the crown jewel of creation that causes David in Psalm 8 to say, what is man that you think about him? You made us rulers over the world, but under you and there is glory in that. And David is stunned and astonished. And what, what, what Moses is communicating to the nation of Israel is that the God who created is the God who is making covenant with them, who best knows them and understands the rhythm of life that they were created to experience and live. The other thing, just one other observation, in verse five, it says, now no shrub had yet appeared. That's a deficiency or a lack of some kind. And then in, let's see, where's my other one? Oh, it's in verse 18. Okay, that's why it's not in my text this morning, okay? It says that it wasn't good for man to be alone. So what Genesis 2 is doing is addressing two deficiencies and then showing how God resolves that need, okay? So in the creative realm work and in the realm of male-female relationships, Adam needed a helper suitable for him. And in Genesis 2, those two deficiencies are going to be filled by the creative work of God. Okay so let's look at uh, verse 7 of chapter 2 okay so 5 through 6 gives us the deficiency it tells us in verse 6 that streams came up or a mist came up and watered the earth there was not yet any domestic planting that is agricultural planting or or plants that needed human care those things have not yet been created because God has not put man there on the earth yet okay and that problem is going to be quickly resolved in the text that is before us. So, chapter two and verse seven, it says, then, and note the name, the Lord God, the covenant-keeping, almighty, infinite one. The Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. There he put the man that he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees to go out of the ground, Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So verse seven tells us that we are the unique creation of God. Verse seven says, then the Lord God formed a man and made it from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So the thrust of these first verses is this, we are God's unique creation. There is something special about humanity by design, by the way it is addressed in the book of Genesis. We are the unique creation of God, he formed our body and he formed our personhood and those two things are not really separated in this text, they're kind of bound up together. Okay, so the thrust is this in verse seven, God, formed a man this act of creating was by deliberate design the idea is of a potter taking clay and carefully forming it into a vessel okay it brings up the ideas of a potter fashioning the ideas of beauty care concern and personal attention so here's what i want you to remember this morning from this particular focus humanity is the unique creation of god We are the object of his goodness and affection in a way that no other created being is. We were formed by God. This text tells us, and God formed a man, a deliberate design. He formed us from the dust of the earth. That's a fascinating statement. He doesn't take us and create us from amazing things. He creates us from basic things. And there is a sense of of humility. When, 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 When you read further in Genesis 3 and then in Ecclesiastes, this statement will be made. You came from the dust, and to the dust you will return. So that we realize that the uniqueness with which we are made also captures this level or degree of humility, that we are but dust. I heard a pastor share a story at one time. He said, Mom, is it true that we are made from dust? And is it true that after we die, we return to dust? And his mom gave the answer in the affirmative. Yes, son, that's true. And he looked at his mom and he says, well, this morning I looked under my bed and someone is either coming or going. (laughs) We're made from humble things. Okay, we're made from the dust. And that is an amazing thing. You know, my grandfather was a man who loved God. And he would say to us all the time, he would quote this, For whatever reason, as a farmer, this is the verse that caught his attention. You come from dust, and to dust you will return. Repeated, repeated, repeated. Fascinatingly, at 77 years old, he was tilling in our garden at our house. I was working on a dairy farm at the time I wasn't home, and he just face-planted right in the garden. And he was gone. And when I think of You're made from dust. I always think of that, a humble man who would express his understanding of his relationship to God as one formed and cared for by God, without a sense of being exalted, even though we are. Okay, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 8 says, God, who who is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you you care for him in such a way, and you made him a vice regent over the world. Folks, that's what God did. He created us under him, but over the world. And we have this unique capacity and place in creation. And the next part of this verse, in verse 7, it says, He created us from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. You can go into all the Hebrew words here. I'm going to be honest that they're used a lot of times in a, in a great variety of ways. The essence of it is that God breathed into man a soul that he becomes a living being in the image of God with the desire to know God, with the capacity to interact with God, with the capacity for emotion and intellect and all those sorts of things. We are so beautifully by God. Created And we are his unique creation in his own image, Genesis 1.27 says, in his likeness to to relate to him and to rule over the world that he gave us. And it's fascinating that that relationship is broken when sin enters into the world. Right? Because when Adam and Eve break covenant with God in Genesis chapter three, what does the Bible tell us? They heard God walking in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from God. Now James is gonna get into that in detail next or in in two weeks. For now let me simply say this. They were created in the image of God, given the life of God, because God breathed life into them to relate to God, to know God, and to rule over the earth that God created. Formed by God for that purpose. That was lost when sin entered in. That is restored when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what we so beautifully sang about this morning. I run to the Father. I couldn't come as a sinner. But because of the grace that God has given me in Christ, I can run to him, I can go back into that relationship. Whereas when God came in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve hid from God because they felt shame and sin. In Christ they find acceptance, forgiveness, restoration and joy. So we were created unique in God's image. And I would argue that because of secular humanism, the idea that we are just, just a, a result of random, random events and random chemical forces and chance that we have suffered an identity crisis that has led to a moral crisis. Science tells us that we descended from apes by sheer chance and random process. And if you think you're here by chance, you are robbed of your significance and of your meaning. Your life lacks the fundamental purpose. You are not unique and you will create your own purpose usually to get the most out of life for yourself and chaos results. There's a place in the Bible that says, if this is the case, then why not eat and drink? Live it up to the fullest because tomorrow we die. Let's get the most out of life because this is all there is. Forgetting that God breathed into man the breath of life, soulishness, which has an eternal quality. It becomes interesting that secular humanism, which aims to exalt humanity above everything, actually ends up degrading man as a chance mutation. Without a creator, without a biblical moral compass, we veer off into the strangest behaviors. Folks, I'm gonna tell you something. Many people think that the perversion that is overtaking America in the realm of sexuality is current. It's not current. It goes back to this uh, doctrine of Darwinism that says we are just a result, a, a result of chance mutations. Well, if that's the case, there is no moral obligation and we are on top because we've evolved the best, we get the most out of the planet we live on. So live it up. And do you realize that that's what's happening? When you throw off the idea that you were created by God, unique in your gender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you throw that off, you open all doors for all kinds of, brokenness and perversion and that sadly is the world that you and i live in the doctrine of creation helps to bring us back well i would just want to say this okay I, I think there are proofs of this we are god's unique creation okay And i'm going to give you just in bullet points three simple proofs that show us that in the beginning God created, and God in this text created man in his image. The first I want to give you is the proof from complexity. Okay, now I know I have extra page this morning, so i got to pull this out, okay? An additional step that I could get lost in, all right? So we have, first of all, the proof from complexity. Many call this the idea or truth of intelligent design. It argues that we are not random, but we are fashioned, designed, unique, and intricate, and that it was done by God. It is an observation, or it is, it is an argument from what we observe, from what we see, the complexity of the human body. In Psalm 139, David says, when I consider all of this, I realize that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And he goes into a level of detail that someone in the ancient time could not possibly know apart from divine inspiration in the record can I read for you real quickly this summary of the complexity of the human body and ask yourself this question could that simply come about through random process think about the remarkable complexity of the human body physically we are the result of two sets of 23 chromosomes which unite at conception A single human chromosome contains 20 billion bits of information, which corresponds to about 500 million words or 2 million pages. At 500 pages per book, this means that a single human chromosome is equal to about 4,000 volumes of information. We each have 46 chromosomes or 184,000 volumes of 500 pages each. Okay? Now, the seminary I went to had 100,000 volumes, or yeah, 100, uh, it was, I think I'm right, it, it was 100,000 volumes of books. It's a lot of books. Okay? In, 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 in what is present in an embryo, there is this staggering amount of data 184,000 books containing 500 pages each. I don't expect you to step back and say I get that number. I don't. Okay, I just—that that is an astonishing number. But that's just what's coded in that original, that, that seed form of you. A person develops miraculously inside the mother's womb, emerging nine months later with more than 200 bones, each shaped with exquisite skill to perform its function. To the bones are attached 500 muscles. Some large, some small, some obeying human will, some acting involuntarily like your eye. Our brain has over 10 billion nerve cells connected to the body by a complex nervous system. Our skin has more than two million sweat glands. I know you didn't need to know that. Okay, but your body has two million sweat glands, 3,000 per square inch. And if you know anything about the human body and human anatomy, you know how critical it is that your body temperature be regulated. Because if it's not regulated, it can spike in ways that will kill you. So all of that is is, 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 is placed there in the most amazing ways. In addition, there are the circulatory, pulmonary, digestive, endocrine, and immune systems, the eye, the ear, senses of smell, taste, touch. The complexity is absolutely unbelievable. There is no Nothing the humankind has created in any way comes close to just the original nascent you In embryonic form And yet we want to say that's just beautifully by chance I think that's why the Bible says the fool says in his heart There is no God Because when you look at that kind of design that depth of complexity you have to come away saying who did this? Okay, there are many things in the the realm of humanity, human accomplishment and achievement. I look at what is done, and the first thought in my mind is that did not happen by chance, who did that? And the same thing is true when we look at at how we are created by God. This argument from complexity. Secondly, there's the argument from benefit. Psalm one, or Genesis, I don't know why I keep saying Psalm one, Genesis one, 26 and 28. Humanity is told to subdue the earth, to master it, and to get the most out of it. Obviously, in a responsible fashion. Okay? So, this would be the proof of, or the argument from benefit. Who in the created realm benefits most from the created world? What species? Okay, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I shared this with the teenagers in Sunday school a few weeks ago. The species that benefits most from the created realm is obviously humanity. With, hands down, without a doubt, I'll just give you these simple illustrations. The, the idea of wood, two by fours, all right, by which we can build things. The petroleum, ore, natural gas, silicate that's used to make chips that go into computers we do today. Those chips are cut by neon gas that is in the realm right here. Extracted from the air. What's the argument? The argument is we live in a world that was resourced by God Primarily for the benefit of humanity. And that's why in Genesis 1 and 2, we are told to rule over that. To be co-sovereigns with God. It's an amazing thought. So here's here's what I look at. I say say this to the kids all the time. When you look at the world around you, who benefits most from it? They say, well, we do. It's pretty easy to see that. Well, guess what? That's what Moses said 3,400 years ago. Without all the evidence of science. It was clear that the realm in which we live was created for the benefit of us. And one writer summarized it in this way He says, It looks as if the world knew we were coming. Think about that. Folks, when we drill down in the earth, we're finding oil that was there from the beginning. And when we dig in in the earth's core and we find ore, it was there from the beginning. And when we drill down and find natural gas, it was there. Do you understand what I'm saying? We live in a world that was obviously created by God for our benefit, that's the argument of Genesis one. Rule over, get the most out of, technologically advance the world in which you live. Who does that? Humanity does that at a level that is way beyond any other created being. So there's the proof of complexity. You can't say it just happened. There's the proof of benefit. It looks as if the world knew we were coming, and my experience teaches me that. And the last proof I want to give you real quick is the proof of enjoyment, okay? So so we're told to worship God. We're told to look at what God has made and to be amazed. It's an involuntary response. About six years ago, I had the privilege of being invited to go on this motorcycle trip out west, and we one of the, the plans, we're going to Jackson Hole National Park, and to get there, I think we had to go through the Grand Tetons, Or when we left Jackson National, we went through the Tetons. I can't remember which. I remember distinctly the experience of coming into this vista that is the valley that kind of leads you out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or I think that's where it is. I think you come out of that, and you come into this valley, and to the left or to the west of the Grand Tetons, the sun was coming up, so we, they were lit I experienced something that day, like just complete awe. I, I, I shed tears as, I, as I, I know you're surprised by that. <laughs> I, as when I looked at that, I was like, who oh am I? I was riding with a group of men. I happened to be in the lead that time because I had the tendency to get lost. They figured if I was in the front, they couldn't lose. <laughs> That's the way it is, right? I'm gonna tell you what I did. I didn't I didn't say, oh that's amazing. I should point it out to my friends. I did not go through a process. I just went like that. This this proof from worship or enjoyment is powerful when you look at what God has done, when you see the complexity of the world that you live in, I, I wanna one day see that, that Boreo Alice thing, whatever the, the Northern Lights, is that, am I saying that right? That's a miracle too. You know what, I, I wanna see that. I wanna be amazed. <laughs> that sense of wonder you feel is unique to humanity. Folks, listen, as I went through that valley and that, that flatland at the base of the Grand Tetons, there were a lot of bison around okay i didn't notice any bison saying check that out <laughs> like i don't think they went out that morning and said wow you all know doug could do that better right I'm, I'm, I'm telling you they go out there and they do their thing instinctively i could not be instinctive i had to in my i said we got to stop And we have to look at this and experience something that only humanity can experience because God created it for you and he created you in his image so that you could at some level appreciate. And here's what I always think. If at the basic level of my thinking capacity, I grasp something that amazes me, there's a whole lot more that I am totally unaware of. And I think these are some of the strongest proofs that in the beginning, God And that in Genesis 2, the Lord God formed the man and he put him in the planet to enjoy it, to benefit from it. And I believe that those are some of the strong, they're not scientific arguments, folks. They're just simple base observations that I think blow away any argument to the contrary. There has to be an intelligent designer behind a world so unbelievably complex and amazing. There has to be, and he must be worshiped. He must be given what he deserves. And we are compelled to do that. John Calvin said it this way. He said, though you try to deny it, this truth will hunt you down. Even a professing atheist feels at times an inkling of what they desire not to believe. You follow that? Even an atheist, when he observes it all and wants to deny the obvious truth that there is a God who created. He feels an inkling to worship what he longs to deny. Isn't that sad? How sad, how pathetic to see the beauty of it all, but not be able to relate to the one who made it all. Even though there is this inkling, I'm blocked by my sinfulness, by my self-centeredness, by my own desires from appreciating and fully enjoying and benefiting from the incredible complexity that God has made as christians we stand on a totally different side because we believe that in the beginning god so the first truth in verse seven of chapter two is that we are god's unique creation and he formed our body and our person and there are obvious proofs of that second truth eight through nine we enjoy god's kind provision Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All I'm going to say about that verse now, because that will come up a lot more in chapter 3, is that there is a moral component to how we are formed, there is some degree of us being under God, but over the world. And in this relationship with God, we have a moral accountability. I could also give you the argument for morality. Okay, you live in a world that demands justice. The most evil person, after having done the most horrific thing, right, can be wronged against and cry out, you can't do that to me. Does that sound familiar to the world you're living in today? right there is this sense that i live in a world that is broken that there is a moral ambiguity that there is this lack of honoring god and it makes a world dangerous to live in And i think that's the argument that begins there in that discussion about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil that'll unpack further as james teaches that text but I think the thrust of this text is that God planted a garden in the east and he put the man there that he had formed. Okay, what does that say? It says that God provided for his creation. He made a garden, he planted trees there. Sadly for people like me, he created fruit trees. Okay, and I, I struggle with that at some level. I'm not a fan of fruit. Okay, I like a lot of vegetables, I like a lot of meat. I just don't know how I would have done, so I'm glad that God brought me along later, okay? He planted a garden. His goodness and kind care are present in preparing the earth. And it's fascinating that the word Edom means delight. The aim of what God had created was to thrill his creatures so that they would then respond to him and say, God, thank you. We glorify you. We praise you. Like looking at the Grand Tetons. Wow. And God put them in a place where he would care for them. And he gave them trees that were pleasing and good for food and needing care. And folks, this is one of the key transitions in the text. This starts to introduce the idea that at the beginning, God did not create for them, at least in, in, that, in that day, he did not create seed-bearing plants. He waited because that's agricultural work. That needs tending and care and concern. Same thing with the fruit trees and things like that. There's, there's this whole uh, aspect of creation that God is doing for the benefit of man and for his glory. The garden is, verses 10 to 14, and uh, Tim, uh, I guess Tim didn't read through that. What it does is it talks about a river flowing from Eden that separates and brings blessing to the rest of the world, okay? So the idea there is that God created a place called paradise. Eden, a garden of delight where he would very beautifully meet the needs of humanity, particularly their need of relationship with him because we were created for that, okay? So what is, what is this? Two of the rivers mentioned are still existent, the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. This is a real geographical location created by God and it's fascinating when you think of the context, right? Where is Israel when they hear these words? They're wandering in the wilderness, in the desert. What is God promising to to Adam and Eve? God's promising to Adam and Eve a place of refreshment, and he says to the nation Israel, I'm gonna lead you into the land that is flowing with milk and honey. The other observation is this, because it says that there are rivers there, there's food there, but it also says the gold of that land, verse 12, is good, aromatic resin, onyx is also there. What is that? That's precious stones. And rivers. Does that ring a bell for you from the New Testament? If you're literate in the book of Revelation, you realize that what God is promising them is very much what like God is promising us after the fall. That at the restoration of all things, there are rivers and there are precious gems. And there's a hint of that at the very beginning of the Bible. Which I think, and I, I just find that fascinating. That part's for free. Okay? There one day will be a restoration of paradise as God intended. And I believe there we will work as God intended for us. I don't think that nature of our design by God goes away in the end of all things. So let's move then to uh, the last point. We were formed for a purpose. This is verse 15. Probably It's the most important perhaps out of this, but maybe the least attractive to us. Okay, What verse 15 says is the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. He put him there for a purpose. So one of the purposes for which God put us there was to work, that is part of the design, divine design. God made man to work there. So what's this tell us? Paradise is not a hammock under a palm tree. Okay, although that's what most of us are longing for. Folks, let me tell you something. If your life was a perpetual vacation, you would tear each other apart. God gave us work and purpose. And when you get up in the morning, if, if you're a normal human being, you probably have somewhat of a desire to do something, to accomplish something, to get that sense of completion because you're created in the image of God and he made you to Work. And to find joy in your work. He created a paradise. And he put them there. Verse 15 says to work it. That literally means to cultivate the ground. That's physical labor. And then as you go ahead later in chapter 2. He has them doing mental work. Right? God brings the animals to Adam. And he's called upon to name the animals that God had created. So we find this idea of physical labor present in the world that God designed. And the work here is dignified because as you read through Genesis one and two, who is the one primarily doing the work? God. God created, God made, God's doing work. Work is not menial, work is not degrading. It's fascinating when you read through the ancient accounts Uh, Babylonian accounts, Egyptian accounts of creation, because you guys understand this. If the world was created by God, that story was carried about by the people of God, and a lot of other nations created mythical accounts in which the gods are fighting. Uh, One of the accounts is fascinating related to work. It says that God didn't want to do work, so he created man to take care of the menial task. The Bible moves in a substantively different direction. The Bible tells us that God is a God who works, we're created in his image, and he has tasked us with work for our enjoyment. That, does that change a little bit with the fall? Yes, because then we begin to work by the sweat of our brow. Okay, we understand that, but we understand that, that this idea of work is a God-given gift. This sense of accomplishment and creating is a God-given gift. Okay, we find joy in doing things like that. I remember when I finished building my house. Now, I was thinking this this morning. It's 23 years ago, okay, finished this work. And there was for me a great, uh, honestly, okay, if my wife was here, she would give you the truth. It's still not finished, okay, (laughs) just in the interest of honesty, okay? But there was a great sense of satisfaction on move-in day, okay? Because what? You had done something. You enjoyed the benefit of that work, and now you've come to this point of satisfaction. Same thing is true of God. Same thing is given to us, that you step back, you take a picture, you share it with a friend, because you were created to do that, and you find joy in that work. Work gives us dignity. Work is not part of the curse. Instead, it is part of our purpose. And when we work, we work as stewards for God, under God, over the world that he created. So you can make an argument from this text that we are to deal with the earth that God has created in responsible ways. We're not to abuse it. Okay, we're to honor it. We don't worship it, but we are caretakers over it, but under God. Okay, and that becomes a very important part of understanding our our daily routines, our daily rhythms when we go out to do the work that is set before us so there's three ways i think you can capture best this idea and understanding of work one is first to look in okay what are the talents that god has given you how did god wire you some of you like doing things that i would never enjoy okay does that make sense God created a variety of talents, different ways of thinking, engineers, and people that construct things, and people that cut grass, and people that plant grass, and and, and you can go on and on, people that do medical work, people that work in computers, and there's this thing that you have called aptitude. That's natural inborn talents that God gave you that when you set your mind to something, you happen to be excellent at that. And when you do it, you find joy in it because God wired you that way. So one of the things you need to do, it's particularly true for high school students, you need to find something that God made you to do, something you'll find joy in doing. So look in, how did God wire me? Don't resent work. It affirms God's design and our dignity. And one of the things I would say, and this is more of a, I was going to say political statement. It's not really a political statement. It's This is the statement of fact. Government programs that steal dignity from people by giving them benefit without work steal from them the dignity of their work. Mom and dad, your kids need to stand on their own. And you should not be sponsoring them into their adulthood and into their marriage in substantial ways because when you do that, you are stealing their dignity. Dignity. God created them to work, to get a benefit from their work, so they can provide for their lives, okay? And when, when a government program or a parental approach steals that dignity, you gotta stop and think about that. God created you, son, God created you, daughter, to work and to care for yourself, and when you do that, you will get a sense of satisfaction, not a free ride. You'll get a sense of satisfaction out of living in the way that God created you to live. So we need to look in, identify our talents, and use them in a way that brings dignity. We need to look out, because one of the purposes of our work is so that we can care for our family, we can provide for our lives, okay? That becomes something that's very clear in Scripture. Okay, so we look out and there's this means of provision and there's also this means of generosity. When I come across a need in the world around me and somebody needs help and I have the capacity to help them, there's joy in taking from the benefits of our work and meeting a need. God says this all over the place in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. When you see someone in need, step up, take from what you've earned in your work and help someone that's in need. Ephesians 4 says, uh, let the one that stole, don't steal anymore, instead labor with your hands that you might have something to give to someone in need. Okay, so it's a means of provision and it's also a means of generosity. So once you get nailed down in your job and you got the paycheck coming in because you're using the gifts that you saw when you looked in, now look out, care for your family. God says, if a man doesn't care for his family, he's worse than an infidel. God gave you work to care for the needs around you, okay? And then thirdly, this text tells us to look up, and I think this is where this rhythm starts to come, okay? The rhythm of work, of rest, and worship, okay? So the Bible tells us in verses two and three that by the seventh day, God had finished all the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from his work. Now that's an interesting statement when I'm talking about the infinite creator God who is Lord in covenant relationship with us. He rested. What kind of rest is that? Is God exhausted? This my back hurts. (laughs) Okay, is that what it's saying? No, the rest that God is enjoying is what? It's a rest of satisfaction. It's a rest of completion. It's done. And he's enjoying that. And he tells man to, to work the ground using the gifts that God has given you so that ultimately you can look to God and worship him on this day called Sabbath. And what God does here is he lays the groundwork for this one in seven principle. That is most clear as you read chapter one through verse one of chapter two. God worked for six days. And on the seventh day, what did he do? He ceased. He stopped working. And what was God doing? God was setting a pattern for us. Because you see this in the Old Testament you'll see it in the New Testament. There is a day that should be set aside in all of our lives on a weekly basis for satisfaction. To sit down on your couch that you bought with your money and relax. And that's a gift from God. And you should do that. You should enjoy the provision of God in a very beautiful way. But as you enjoy that, you must also look to God and say, God, thank you for the gift you've given me. Thank you for the provision of a physical body that can work. Some people don't have that. And it should humble us because remember that I'm dust and the dust I'm going to return. But in the meantime, God has given me a purpose to live for him. He's breathed into me an eternal soul that can relate to God. And as I work, I can do that with God. Okay, not for God, but with God. And I can enjoy the benefits of this beautiful gift of work. I'd make this observation. When you work hard, rest is more satisfying and valuable. Have you experienced that? And I have. (laughs) Sometimes you just can't wait to get home and sit on the couch because you are done. But that rest, yeah, for us is characterized by exhaustion, but it's also characterized by some degree of satisfaction. Something in my workplace today was accomplished, despite all the irritating people at work. Okay? Something... Something got done, there was a task laid out and a task accomplished, and with it there is this sense of satisfaction and joy. God wants you to have that. I I won't let myself go any further on that. So Colossians three says this, and this is the work is worship. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart for the Lord and not for man. And then Paul says this, it is Christ you are serving. So my work, when I go out and I labor for someone, and I help someone, whatever I'm doing, that is work for me. right? And that can be in the context of home life. That can be in the context of going out on a job. It's a task. I do it. I get joy. I get satisfaction in that care. It matters. It means something. And Jesus says to us, when you do that, when you pour yourself out, Don't do it for the applause of people, because if it doesn't come, you will find it devastating. If your labor is underappreciated. Isn't that the cause of a lot of struggle in marriage and workplace? Right? I did my share, you didn't. And so we quibble over that. What does Paul say? Do your work as unto the Lord. Do everything you do for the glory of God and as before his eyes. And let the results in his hands. Okay, folks, that's worship. When I do what God has given me to do, and I earn a blessing, and I use it for his glory, and I I sit back and I rest in satisfaction, and I say, God, thank you for the gift of work. Because I don't know about you, but I would not want to sit around seven days of the week, and I know my wife would become, just think about that, okay? (laughs) God help my wife. So let's draw this to a close. In Genesis two and verse four, it says, this is the account of the heavens and earth when they were made, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And you do get this sense as you read through this, that God sat back and said, it's done. And there's a beauty in that. God sat back and said, it's done. Millennia later, there's a second time that God says, it is done. Amen. The son of God says to his disciples, the work that the father has given me to do, shall I not do it? And at the end of that work, the Lord God cried out. And the person of his son, Jesus Christ, it is finished. Shall I not do the work that God has given me to do? And the son of God submitted to his father in heaven and did the work that we so desperately needed to be done for us. He allowed himself to be hung on a cross. The Bible says it this way. Jesus said, you don't take my life from me, I lay it down. And on that cross, he paid the price for my sin and for your sin. And he paid the price of his death. And at the end of that sequence of events, he cries out, it is finished. And Hebrews 4 and verse 9 fascinatingly says this. It says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That is for people who trust in and believe in God. For anyone who enters God's rest, also rest from his work. This Hebrews is talking about spiritual labor. Trying to earn favor with God. By religious activity, the Son of Man comes and says, no, don't, it's done. I did it for you. And by faith, you enter into the rest that I earned, the rest that I achieved rest from the consequences of your sin. Isn't that beautiful? So God creates and he says, it's, it's good. It's done, it's finished. And then we find the curse and the fall and brokenness and all aspects of life. And then we come into the Gospel of John and Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. The writer of Hebrews says, We who have believed enter into that Sabbath rest. We enter into the rest of Christ, which is the freedom from the consequence of sin, because He took the consequence for us and He offers us hope and peace. Folks, until you believe that Jesus lived a life that you could never live, died on the cross for you, fulfilling the demand of God's holy law, doing the work that my Father has given me to do, you will be exhausted that's why Jesus calls out to the crowds that followed him and said come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest folks I look forward to the day when the hard part of work is gone but I believe with all my heart based on Matthew chapter six when Jesus prays in in the Lord's prayer he says father your will be done on earth as it is in heaven I believe he's talking about the restoration of all things I think he's talking about the restoration of a new heaven and a new earth, wherein we find sublime purpose. Working like God works, because it's not part of the curse. It's part of why we were created. To enjoy life together before him in the most glorious way. That's all. If you come up to me after the service, can you tell me more about that? The answer is no. I can't. I'm just telling you, Jesus prayed that God's will would be done on earth as it was in heaven. And I believe that is the reversal of what happens in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. When it all falls apart. I look forward to that day. I wonder this morning, have you come to rest in Christ? Because we're going to go right now partake of elements. Elements that declare a very simple truth in three words. Communion says it is finished. The consequence of your sin, paid in full. The wrath that you deserve, born by the Son of God who lived the life you could never live, died the death that you should die, so that you could be forgiven and set free. So as we partake of the elements this morning, I want to ask you to think in two ways. Go back to the beginning. When God says, it's done. You and I are part of that, of what God has made. And then I want you to think ahead a few millennia to the cross of Christ. When for you a sinner in need of a savior, he cried out, it's done. It's done. Your sin paid in full. And if you believe in the son of God, having repented of your sins and trusting in him, he will make you his child. And he will restore purpose to your life. He will make your work more enjoyable. He'll make your life more purposeful as you rejoice and celebrate in him. Father, as we conclude the service this morning, and as the men come to share the elements that proclaim it is finished may we reflect on this text and may we see that everything we are called to do is worship may we prepare as we partake of these elements to go into life differently tomorrow tasked by God to work and to represent him well Lord as we partake of these elements this morning I pray that there will be a cry in our heart that simply says thank you Lord that it is done And thank you that you did your Father's will, the work that he gave you, so that we could be forgiven and set free. Bless now as we share the elements. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the men are going to come with the elements in just a moment. The very simple directive from the Lord's table is this. Let each one examine themselves and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And I pray that as you receive the elements, you will do that this morning.
1: Deeds I've done. In my pride, I strive to work. And battle needless fears Voices tell me I'm condemned And that I can't draw near But your spirit calls me homeward With your words of life Jesus born every sin, so I cling to Christ. is king. For those who know your love, all the treasures of this world will never satisfy. You alone are endless joy.
0: this morning the symbols of the work that Christ has done for us and he gave us direction to remember that work through the Lord's table he said this for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me goes on to say in the same manner he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death his work for you until he comes Would you pray with me this morning? Father, this is our day of rest. And it is a day that we are reminded of the fact that you rested when all your work of creation was done with joy and satisfaction. It reminds us that we were called to a day of rest to on a regular basis during the week at some point to set aside time to reflect on you, to rejoice in you, To look up to you. And then in the other six days to worship you in our work. Lord, help us as we go from here today to rest. Help us to reflect. To give thanks. And tomorrow that we would enter into the workplace as an act of worship before a holy God. Lord, that will change our lives. They will not be mundane. They will have dignity and purpose and joy and worship for which we were created. So we bless you and we praise you in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you as you go.